This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we're breaking down John Deere. With a history dating back almost two centuries, Deere has been a mainstay in the agriculture industry for generations. And despite the rich history as an incumbent, Deere is also on the leading edge of technology and innovation in ag tech. To help break down John Deere, I'm joined by Matt Coots. Matt comes from a multi-generation family of farmers and brings the unique ability to connect finance and farming. During our conversation, we discuss what the ag ecosystem looks like today, what drives farming economics, and why Deere holds such a strong competitive advantage that seems to only be growing. Please enjoy this breakdown of John Deere. Matt, thank you for joining us to break down John Deere. I thought a good place to start would be if you provide us with a bit of your background as a family farmer. Clearly, you have a very in-depth understanding of the industrial agriculture ecosystem. It'd be helpful to kind of start with what you do, where you spend your time. Thanks, Zach. So our company, we're in about our 11th decade of business now, farming in Saskatchewan. We now grow over 100,000 acres. We focused a lot on building out the industrial agriculture model on our farm. And we mean that in a sense of just operating efficiency, operating consistency, and finding the right grain buying markets. Now, how I spend my time would be focusing on different tech opportunities at our company, then more broadly, different investment opportunities across the food and ag ecosystem. I think something that's so interesting about agriculture and farming is that despite the fact that it's so involved in our day-to-day lives, the general public's appreciation and understanding for how food gets to the table is probably less appreciated than most other things that we constantly interact with. Maybe it'd be helpful, Matt, for you just to frame the industry for us. Can you give us a sense of how big it is on a dollar quantum basis or acres, whichever KPIs you think are most relevant? And then we can dive a bit deeper into John Deere from there. I think when you think about the global crop production industry, it's like in excess of a trillion dollars. I think all of agriculture is several trillion dollars, totaling about three and a half percent of global GDP. But when you think about probably what affects most of your listeners, the US industry, it's about $220 billion a year with the seeded acres in the US dominated by both corn and soybeans. And when you think about how it affects us day to day, mechanized agriculture, the odd thing is, is how corn and soybeans are mostly affecting us through other ways. So rather than us all eating corn, we're consuming ethanol or consuming other livestock, which is where the vast majority of corn and soybean feed go to. And then as you get into certain things, well, the amount of money farmers are spending in the U.S., collectively, farmers will spend $26 billion a year on fertilizer, 22 or $23 billion on seed, another $16 billion on chemical. So it's like massive on the kind of upstream agriculture side. Overall, you've got about a billion acres globally of available land with about $400 million of that in North America, which is the most mechanized and productive and efficient. But as you look rest of the world, and this is just any other industry that people studies, you've got kind of monetization and production leader in North America, and then the rest of the world's accelerating to meet global demand. And 
as population increases on top of a constant land base, crop production technology, the yield enhancing technologies are going to be more and more important to the future of food and agriculture. Clearly, given the relevance that big ag has on the global population, incredibly relevant to all of our lives, there are natural supply and demand dynamics that make productivity and efficiency key to the longer-term equation in regards to feeding the world. Can you walk us through some of the key inputs that can help to drive that efficiency and that you need to consider in the equation for your business? The major variable in terms of from driving crop yields and crop production is fertilizer use. And you can think of fertilizer just like any individual think about their macronutrient composition for their body. So protein, fat, and carbs gives you more calories, which gives you more energy. And with fertilizer, your major macros are nitrogen, phosphate, and potash. And they all serve different functions toward the productivity of the crop, whether it's strength or yield. As you have major companies in this industry, such as uh, Nutrient, Yara, Mosaic, and CF Industries, generally you're seeing the market react pretty crazy right now. We've got a huge impact from China exports being banned, which has been driving the price up. Generally, farmers will be forced to be quite price insensitive, given without fertilizer, you can't grow a crop. And then as you're looking to kind of maximize revenue, yields, different spot fertilizer treatments. So that's where you're getting more advanced technologies, which is a lot of new startups innovating and companies with a retail presence like Nutrient invest a lot more in. After fertilizer, another major element is the seed and chemical manufacturers. Major companies here are Bayer, BSF, Corteva. This part of the industry has gone, undergone lots of consolidation in the last five years. These companies will generally do about 20 to 27% EBITDA margins are kind of a combination of a core risk management function. One, as disease hits crops and insects hit crops, you spray to make sure you maintain your anticipated yield. So those risks don't have as much of an effect on the crop. But alternatively, they can be used on the seed side, maximize productivity with new technology, most well-known would be GMO. And what's becoming more interesting and new is advanced is in CRISPR technology. But the key thing with, with GMO technology from when Monsanto commercialized in the mid-90s was allowing farmers to grow these mass volumes with consistency. And it comes from the spray and comes from the seed technology working all together to have one, a, a consistent quality of product, and then year to year having a consistent, strong and increasing yield performance. And so when you think about the business that is John Deere, where do they play in agriculture? Deere's got an interesting spot where they're like the key enabler of low-cost food globally and in general, you know, what we may frame as industrial agriculture. So they'll do about 35 to low $40 billion of revenue annually. This year's with corn and soy where it's at, it's going to be on the higher end above 40. And that compares to like more revenue than Tesla, comparable size to daily staples like Coca-Cola that we deal with. So quite enormous. Their egg business itself is maybe 20, 22 to $28 billion, which would Compared to say their competitors, the CNH or NAGCO, which would be around nine to nine to twelve billion dollars each, depending on the year. When you kind of take a step back and consider the dollar amount of revenue that Deer commands, how is it that they're generating revenue? What is their basic business model? They manufacture equipment, buying things like steel, tires, rubber, etc., put it together in a factory, add a bunch of chips and computers to it, and price it so they have about a 25 to 30% gross margin on the business. And you'll see three big categories would be tractors, sprayers, and combines. Tractors may, may retail for 500 to 650,000, combines upwards of a million. 
And then how they make the numbers work well for them is they generally sell that to their dealer channel, which looks a lot like a franchising business where you've got the capital intensive, inventory intensive portion laid off onto entrepreneurs around the country. Unlike the franchisee business, they don't generate fees or anything like that, but they're primarily there to one, serve customers daily and two, to allow dealer to capture higher margins. Most dealers will be, say, a well-performing dealership could be a three to five percent net margin where deer on a consolidated basis would be like seven to 10 and on their egg business, it's probably low to mid team. So that's how they generally interact. And the core deer and co-business is, is managing the dealer relationship day to day. So it's kind of like that classic framework of distribution and product. How is it that their dealers are successful? What is it that farmers are buying on in their consideration set for ag equipment? On the dealer channel, they've got, I believe they've probably gotten over two times the amount of stores in North America compared to teenager egg co So what that means is the average deer dealers may be 30 to 45 minutes away from farm where the average competitors may be like an hour and a half. And so from a farmer's perspective, that's like incredible service that they can get. They can rely that deer will be at their farm that day to service something broken that they're not able to do. So that's a service side that super important is one of deer's secret sauce. And then on the more hardware product side, deer's 180 some years old, I think now. So they've been super reliable forever. Their slogan used to be solid, stable. John Deere, something like that. So that's kind of always been a key tenant is quality and, and reliability of the product. In the last decade, we've seen them spend a lot of money and time and attention towards technology. And the first phase of this was more telematics, connectivity, and the guidance of the equipment. For example, on guidance, um, most equipment without hands-free now, you press a button, it goes straight. And at the end of the field, you turn it around. And so Deere's been focused on that. And the next phase, which customers are being much more sensitive to, is how does this equipment effectively deploy higher end technology, whether that's the seeding side, the pay, how much seed is distributed per acre, spraying specifically for disease or insects and not spraying every acre. And then on harvest, it's all about how much capacity you can do per hour. So those are all relevant metrics. And then of course, gear will price appropriately like any company will, but it's all about how do you get product in the bin the fastest in the fall and, and out the quickest into the ground in the spring. Being that you're a farmer yourself, can you help us to appreciate how a farmer thinks about the economics of their business? Yeah. So if you think of like the bulk of American farmland, which is corn and soybeans, farm will generally target kind of on the low end, the last several years, about $500 of revenue up to maybe $750 to $800 on a highly productive cornfield. And usually you'll see people kind of in that 45 to 55% gross margin area after paying their fur cam and, and seed expenses is as i said before those are the, the core ingredients to increasing yield productivity across the industry and then as you look on the opex side again these are relatively fixed expenses both on inputs and on on opex but machinery labor fuel in your land costs land is generally always going to be the biggest number whether it's a straight rent expense or principal repayment on land which those numbers can be 30 40% of revenue it all shakes out and between good and bad land. And you'll probably see the average farm at like a 5 to 10% net margin full cycle. So not outstanding performance, but it's better than one would expect given all the oligopolies that they buy and buy from and, and sell to. What are some of the large machinery purchases that a farmer needs? So tractor, like a mainstay, that's something that's used most months in the year, even in the winter for, for various needs. A sprayer, some people will have their 
spraying done custom, like an input retailing and the combine. The combine is probably where Deer's biggest competitive advantage is right now. They came with an X9 combine a year ago, which nearly doubles the speed. In some cases, more than doubles the speed that a farmer can go. So you think of going 2.2 miles an hour to going over five, it's like a tectonic shift in how a farmer will manage their farm, whether that's a labor reduction, an acre increase, just getting done before winter hits or something like that. So quite significant. And that's really how deer is deploying technology, both combination of hardware and then software, just making the product on a net product that much more productive for the user. And so to spend a bit more time on the actual large equipment that a farmer needs, I know this may sound like a wild question to you. Can you explain what a combine does? It's a combine piece of equipment a farmer uses to capture all of the crop it's grown. So there's a header, which goes on the front of the combine, which could range from 25 to 50 feet wide. And it has a knife on the bottom that will cut the crop. The crop flows up and into the main part of the equipment and chops it up and whatnot, separates the chaff and the waste from the seed. And the seed goes into the core part of the combine, which ultimately goes the, or the grain, which is sold to the elevator, local elevator generally, or grain terminal. Correct me if I'm wrong, but farms are still generally owned by families, but the operations are millions of dollars in the making. How do you think about the landscape of quote-unquote family farmer and what that means nowadays? There's like a profit-maximizing family farmer, and then there's keeping it going family farmer. And I think we'll continue to see maybe the great entrepreneurs of family farms continue to consolidate and scale. Of course, there's some more corporate environments, and that'd be more common in the livestock sector. The family grain farms, the big ones generally seem to be founder-driven or certainly um, founding family-driven. And they'll continue to take share, utilizing largely driven from technologies that the input side and using fertilizer and chemical really efficiently, and then finding ways to be more effective, utilizing their machinery. And of course, utilizing machinery efficiently, the costs flow down onto the fuel and labor side. So you'll see people, I think, generally consolidate with the other lower cost structures and and maybe better access to capital in, in some situations. It's an interesting dichotomy, right? Because at such low margins, clearly there's not a lot of headroom for input cost inflation or losses in productivity. But with that being said, writ large, any enhancement or improvement in their operations can really help to drive major swings in the profitability or the ROI inherent in that business. Is it possible for any farmers to consistently earn kind of above industry returns through any cycle? It's possible for some farmers to do it. I think it's quite difficult now, especially where, where prices are at. I think cap rates on land are like 25 or 3% in a lot of areas. We've witnessed across really the whole world, but specifically in, in grains, is like there's extreme swings in um, commodity prices. And sometimes when you have planted your crop and your price of corn goes up 50%, that's all incremental margin. So there's a, definitely an opportunity in certain years to have, you know, you go from a consistent 10 to 15% return on equity business to above average years of 30 to 40. So the key there is like you need to have storage that allows you to lean in these commodity cycles or short-term super cycles. So that's grain storage. And then on the other hand, it's fertilizer storage. We've witnessed in Canada and a lot of places last year, in a couple months, the price of urea or nitrogen can go up 50%. So that's how a farm can kind of capture the upside or on the fertilizer side, miss the downside how you balance out those poor years and so you don't have a bunch of negatives is all about a low cost structure. And of course, every given the 
owner operator nature of the industry, everyone's going to be super focused on cost. But how you, I think anyone's able to get a true advantage of cost structure is generally through the density of land. When you have a significant amount of land close by, you're able to reduce your OPEX per acre because you can use your equipment more efficiently and therefore utilize your land or utilize your uh, labor and your fuel costs more efficiently. And that could be $150, $180 per acre. And so if you can bring that down 10, 15, 20%, the operating leverage works really, really well when you've got $650 revenue crop already in the ground. So I think in a lot of ways, farming is it's all about maximizing operating leverage, whether it's on the upside and holding your crop through a, either a good weather or pricing cycle or maximizing fixed costs per acre. So all the headlines these days speak to the volatility and the variable costs associated with running a farm, whether that's fertilizer, or herbicides. Clearly, we're seeing inflation in categories like which farmers haven't been able or haven't had to contend with in decades. At the same time, the output, the corn and the soy being the principal cash crops are near all-time highs. But the fixed costs associated with running a farm are likely machinery-oriented and rent, obviously. What role does deer play in helping to control some of those costs that otherwise would absorb much of the margin of the farm itself? If I were to think about like how deer would try to optimize it maybe for themselves and for the farmer is they may be increasing the price per unit, but trying to put, say, less total hours into each acre by having more efficient equipment. From the farmer perspective, maybe they're getting more life out of their equipment, but deer's getting a better upfront gross margin. And a lot of ways that deer will do that is kind of the most notable and what gets most attention nowadays, their digital and software strategy. What deer's been able to do really effectively in the last decade is have this massive installed base of connected machines using kind of their core underlying technologies of guidance, which is auto steer for farms. So it helps a tractor or a combine or whatever go back and forth with no variance through a field. Two, different telematics and IoT-like like services. And then three, they're just general data management of different yield products. And so those three things are kind of the core of how every customer has got used to like working with deer and deer products. So you get a certain level of standardization through whether it's a integrated or interoperable UI across all the different functions. And so we're able to squeeze a few more hours out of a sprayer or a tractor every year, whether that's on a per acre basis or aggregate. And that's how you bring things down over time on the cost basis. But And then on the hardware side, gears doing certain things like they can just come out with a new extant combine where you can double the speed that you went last year. On the spray side, they're working on things where you're only spraying where the camera detects disease. You're not spraying every single inch in the field. So they've been able to kind of combine their hardware with the software to great advantaged integrated offering for customers. As a farmer, what are the things that you're most focused on? I assume yields being the most important thing relative to costs. How does the John Deere equipment itself help improve outcomes for farmers? So the key with the John Deere system is the user interface inside with the computers that are inside the equipment are all integrated across tractors, sprayers, and harvest. So every employee, one knows how to, to run every piece of equipment. More importantly, you're able to transition to data management, what you're seeding and how that impacts your harvest performance and things like that. Moving beyond that, on the services side or the digital services side, they know the equipment better than, say, a third party, just the way Apple knows how to optimize their products for the iPhone better than others. They found a way to own the most important layers. So guidance, 
data management in telematics, which they've identified as their key foundational layer of technology, which you may analogize as this installment period, which came to a head about 20 when Deere started its smart industrial strategy. And that was reorganizing the company around production systems, which is your, your key product lines, technology, and then aftermarket solutions, where they named their first ever CTO. So there's a lot of industries you may debate when the installment period ends and employment period begins. And in agriculture, it's kind of like when Deere said so. When Deere adapted their strategy, now the focus is on how do we use this massive installed base and this high-end equipment? He said, as, as customers, it works really good. We've got this huge amount of switching costs and general network effects, both in our farm and then as we work with the broader network. So now they're using that to deploy whether that be AI or computer vision, other advanced technologies on the path forward towards autonomy. When we think about autonomy in the end state, we can't like train people on six different operating systems as they get more complex and the importance of the data, general digital infrastructure to flow through the whole farm. So they're kind of integrated bundle of, of software or the interoperability of the whole ecosystem is one, what makes it way better as an operator and two, continued increase and gross profit going forward. So does a typical farm mix and match their equipment or are they using the same throughout? I asked, given the commentary around the platform itself, I imagine once deer penetrates a farm, it's very difficult. The switching costs are high for the farmer and the likelihood of changing it, I assume, is very low. Definitely farmers have always had pretty intense brand loyalty. It's almost territorial or religious if you're a case or deer and you know those are associated with colors and you wear the hat. So there's starts off a lot of brand loyalty. It wouldn't be uncommon for someone to be the majority under one brand and then have something that wouldn't be as essential with another brand. For example, I have a friend in Brazil that has a half a million acre farm and, and he buys some case just for competitive jostling. He tells me. So it's not totally uncommon, but it's becoming a lot less common as digital element becomes much more important. You can imagine if you're an Apple user and your Mac and your iPhone and your iPad all kind of work together, whether it be your mail app or your iMessages, it's just so much smoother. That wasn't a big deal when we didn't use the cloud and nothing really saved anyways, but that we expect the cloud and those different benefits to be there. It's changed quite a bit. So for sure, it definitely has farm scale and are more advanced digitally and from technology perspective the switching costs get higher and higher is that you, one, all the users or, or the employees on farms get so much more comfortable and used to running a certain operating system, just like we get used to running the iPhone and not the Android. And so it's, it's becoming more and more so Deere's done an incredible job of one, having the actual network effects and switching costs within a farm, but they've copied the Apple strategy of opening up their data at customer's discretion to different startups and other even incumbents that have sort of digital strategies. So they're able to continue to build the value of their digital and software business, one by owning the most advanced software layers that people get used to. And one, it's there's network effects we spoke about, one, it's just a structurally better product. And then two, they have the entire industry spending money on their app store to make their business better and to serve customers better through the John Deere platform as well. The concept of precision agriculture is becoming a hot topic among not just practitioners, but investors in the space. It's clearly something that John Deere is prioritizing. What exactly does the industry mean when they're speaking towards precision agriculture? So generally, precision, you'd probably think about it just finding new ways to be efficient and more efficient with your spend. So the idea of precision agriculture is like probably a lot of good marketing. I think we've always been trying to be more efficient. What it means to Deere is they're able to leverage off their 
equipment strength, so to speak. So I think of working around the precision egg concept of like IoT. And we think of IoT as a lot of like the internet of tractor. And deer has sensors everywhere. They're like computers on wheels in terms of all their equipment they have. So they're able to one, generate better insights because they've got sensors and a data acquisition strategy perpetually going in the field. And then two, they're able to take those learnings and just general product development research of how do you make things more efficient. So one, they've used guidance in a lot of ways to reduce the amount of excess driving in a field. And then the extreme end of precision that deer has been spending money on would be seeing spray. And so that's rather than so a traditional sprayer would be a 100 to 120 foot wing, essentially, that sprays chemical and everything it goes after, it, whether it's killing or enabling if it's fertilizer, that's great. And it kind of doesn't miss anything. Where the next level in precision agriculture that deer's leading would be you just spray the plant where there's a disease or there's some issue showing up. So maybe you're dropping your product cost by 50 to 70. What the total upside could be is still early, but it's about finding ways to use your working capital spend more efficiently. It's hard to to structurally change how much fuel you spend or things like that. But if you can use equipment to take the product to the next level, and then further on precision ag that would be outside of deer would be finding ways to get super granular levels of data to have more precise solutions. So per acre traditionally would have a recipe for how much nitrogen, phosphate, potash, seed, et cetera, goes into each acre. And of course, not every acre is the same. It's like your insurance business and your textile mill. And it's all about how do you allocate the least amount of product to low productivity soil and then putting much more product than the average on the high productivity soil and, and finding that optimal balance. And, and that's kind of a perpetual battle is the industry has really struggled to have like a proper method of testing. It's hard to get a B test in agriculture as no seasons ever like and, and no, no soil regions ever like. So there's a lot of challenges in, in marketing results in the industry where deer's well positioned is their marketing equipment outcomes is much more straightforward. You know, if you can go up a higher speed or spray less with a certain sprayer, things like that, they're in a much better position to market those benefits with self-respect, I guess I would say. Can you kind of take us through the process from winter to spring to fall harvest that a farmer goes through in order to prepare their field, seed and spray, and then harvest it, and how the deer equipment interacts throughout that system? I'll give Canadian examples. The American ones got a lot more steps in tillage and things like that. We'll finish harvest in the fall. We'll start marketing our grain. Some will be sold right then. Some will be sold later in the year. And sometimes it's carried over a full 12 months. Sometime after harvest, you'll, you'll generally start applying fertilizer in preparation for next year on more nitrogen-intensive crops, canola or wheat, or and then again, in the U.S., it would be corn. So that is often done with the deer fertilizer spreader. So it's a lot like a sprayer, just applies more of a granular fertilizer in a different way. So you're using deer then, and then importantly, you're taking the learnings that you got from the deer harvest data, as well as some of the input data on spraying and seeding, and you're taking that information to plan your seeding plan for next year, which crops are going where, or in more specifically, how much is going to each field. And so you'll often be accessing there and you'll be using a lot of different equipment analytic data that deer provides. You can maybe put a more specific KNL plan in for next year as you know, maybe you're over under on your hours per acre and different things like that. So that's where deer plays a huge factor is actually planning in the winter. And you'll be working with your salesman on new products you need, et cetera. Then as you get closer to seeding, there may be some pre 
field work, such as like a glyphosate spray to make sure all the weeds are dead so you can seed into it properly. And then you'll seed, which in the US may take a couple of weeks. In Canada, it can take us up to five, depending where we're at there. That's again, you're probably using a deer tractor in a lot of cases. I know we do. And shortly following that, you'll have another round of spray, which would be just kind of an in-crop herbicide to, which would be on canola first. And then other products, just a kind of a general in-crop, you call it. Throughout the summer, you do more situational sprays if there's pests or disease from moisture and different things like that. And so in that sense, you think of a sprayer as like the ultimate risk management or revenue maximization tool. You kind of like the killer app. If you don't have a sprayer, and certainly not have a sprayer that can react quickly to issues, it's got a huge torque on your revenue potential. Sometimes just a day or two can have a 20 to $40 potential um, impact on revenue per acre in Canada, which can be a 5 to 10% number. So that's why it's you kind of think what it is, the most important asset we would have throughout the year. And then once you get into August, September, you begin to harvest with the combine we spoke about earlier. And that point, you could have twice the amount of combines that you might have cedars and maybe three times as much as you have spurs. So it can be quite organizationally complex where you've got a lot of combines, a lot of semi-trucks taking the grain out, grain carts in the field. So it becomes a little interesting to say the least and always having, again, the importance of the consistent tech interface or computer user interface in each cab throughout the year allows us to find that level of standardization that manufacturers speak of and want to do whether you call it Six Sigma or not, or something else, sorry, finding that standardization to react with speed throughout the year and to avoid mistakes becomes more and more important all the time. And so if I consider the customer's relationship with John Deere, is it fair to say that there's a recurring relationship you have? And I think about in the context of all these businesses that the public markets have learned to love, recurring or subscription being the key term or construct that everyone is so focused on. How do the economics kind of work with the payment terms and how Deere makes money relative to what could be a software-like tech company if you really wanted to stretch the definition of how Deere interacts with its customer? Deere's kind of gone at it how maybe one should in terms of getting the technology into the customer's hands, but have gone at a very different way than the public market examples that you're probably thinking of where, okay, let's show the public investors a subscription or a software line item and, and kind of encourage you know a different revenue multiple on that. What Deere's done is they continue to sell all their equipment just as one equipment revenue line. When the customer does that transaction, they're activating software usage rather than paying for your traditional license subscription. And why Deere would have done this is because when they first started rolling out all this technology, the software is it was hit with a bit of skepticism, as you can imagine. You know, people had operated 100 years without software and, and all these different technologies, and now they're being told they need them. So there's natural skepticism. And, and at the same time, people didn't know how to use these things. So they need to reduce much friction. So in the last decade, and certainly a lot more intense over the last five years, Deere's found a way to create this IoT, this internet of tractor business, where they've got 350,000 connected machines all activated. And they're now effectively all subscription units with different software services. And I think when Deere, they, when they announced their smart industrial strategy in 2020, that was, in my mind, it's like them saying, this is the end of the installment phase. Let's move to the deployment phase. And now they're starting to sell different computer vision products, AI. And I think for them, and, and that's in terms of how you're reading the field in terms of monitoring disease and yield and stuff like that. 
And when I think about what Deer's probably endgame is like a full autonomy business where decisions are being, whether in both a seeding and spraying and harvesting are all being automated, whether it's a centralized computer making that or each computer in every different piece of equipment making those decisions on the go. So all about eliminating as much variance as possible, which is kind of the where I think you get the most upside incremental returns from the farm. So we'll slowly probably start to sell almost like a software in a box or kind of a John Deere OPEX in a box to a certain extent to make all farms the most efficient as possible. So after a season, I assume that you get a yield map of your farm and you can see where the inputs yielded the best productivity. How are you then working with John Deere to interpret your data? Who owns the data? Is there anything they're doing there to monetize further this rich set of information they're getting as a function of your tractor that's constantly pinging a server with everything that's going on, whether it be the mapping, where you're placing seed, what you're able to harvest? This would be like a new, in terms of how you're working with your filter, it's like constantly evolving, for example, at our dealership, Western Sales, they have a full agronomy team. And so those agronomists are like, think of them as like dietitians for your field. And they're advi- they'll take the data, body mass index or something like that, equivalent, suggest a new diet. And that diet will be a combination of fertilizer, seed, and then chemical, but that's more kind of in season. Lots of, there's lots of like niche firms that do this. There's some bigger, like a Nutrien or a Wilbur Ellis or a Winfield United will do this. At our place, we work with deer and that's another way where deer's using this service intensive model, you know, they've traditionally, their service is based on equipment mechanics, and now it's incrementally expanding to agronomy research, agronomy analysis. And so they'll take your yield data, do some cross-referencing to what you seeded in those different locations and say, this worked, this didn't, try this next year, don't try this, et cetera. And all that data is generally coming from the John Deere platform. It's simple to use. Everyone's used to it. And so you've got your Anonymous using that, your salesman knows how to use it, your employees know how to use it, you know how to use it as an analyst. And to a certain extent, you can send stuff to your bank more straightforward than some other stuff. So it kind of becomes the key point of language to share this data throughout your partner network or your support network. From an industry structure standpoint, what is it that enables John Deere to enjoy such large margins for what is seemingly an equipment manufacturer? And I guess that the business is a lot more like Boeing than it is an auto OEM. But the margins that they realize are significantly higher than that that you would expect of an industrial company. Why is that? There's kind of like what's set deer up and then there's broadly from a macro perspective and then there's some more micro actions that they did. I would kick off that kind of modern agriculture and modern agriculture demand and why Deers maybe had the volumes to develop into is one, the invention and commercialization of GMOs. It's kind of all in the late 90s and early 2000s, a few things here. So the commercialization of GMO corn increased supply and simplicity to grow. Two, Chinese demand for food. And then three, so those are two kind of macro events. And then two, macro shifts, so to speak, that was provoked by deer was auto steer. And that's why I talked about a farmer just clicks a button in a field then they drive perfectly straight, most efficient, you could do it, which had a massive change on the industry. You actually want to farm all the time. Like it's incredibly exhausting to actually sit and try to drive a tractor straight all day. You kind of got one eye closed. So combination of those things set up for a semi-boom in agriculture for a couple of decades. And then of course, to kind of like incentivize gear to do the right things, 
they enacted in the early 2000s executive compensation policy built around, I think they call it operating return on assets, but return on capital metrics. And that, I guess, it wanted them to think a little bit clearer. How they've, and then, so to your actual question that you asked, how they've done this is one, like you've got brand loyalty. So they've got the, the nearly 200 years of consistency. Products always work the same or always worked as they said it would. I think I've been told that Deer will let it, for example, they'll let an engine after they manufacture it, they'll let it sit for like five years. So it cures. So there's never any chance that your John Deere engine is going to like a right breakdown in the field. So from there, obviously, product quality. There's cycles that people deal with and Deere's finds a way to work through those cycles. Like any manufacturer, it's not always good. Keep a bit of a liquid balance sheet and then putting a lot of the capital intensive portion onto the um, dealership. Now, where Deere's going in terms of, or has been going in terms of getting these advantaged margins, it doesn't really make sense. If you think about it, right, it's like steel and paint and rubber, and they've got a 27 trending to 30% gross margin. Is they've just done an incredible job of bundling the whole thing together, just kind of like the apple of agriculture. They bundle the hardware really effectively. They bundle the core operating system really effectively. And then they own all the most important apps, so to speak. Generally makes everything work so much better. Every junior customer complains about price, which is like a good and a bad sign. It means people are still paying the price. And, and obviously, so they're still getting sales and they're still able to extract the price they're looking for. And then, of course, it helps with the industries in oligopoly. The other two major competitors, CNH and Agco, certainly structurally inferior from a general financial standpoint. But from a straight brand standpoint, they're like much worse than that because they have multiple brands that get to those numbers. Their consolidated revenue would be like half of Deer, and they have multiple brands. So kind of on a brand-for-brand brand basis, they fall way behind. So every dollar of R&D that Deer puts into the ecosystem or into their business has got much more impact and kind of think about it like an increasing returns business. Brian Arthur would write about where now that they've got this big established connected base and they've got over 250,000 connected machines or something like that, as they continue to spend on, on R&D, the product gets better and better and accelerated for the customers. And so they're able to continue to just extract that margin from the dealer. And then of course, as they're pushing price there, they're incentivizing the dealer in different ways to make money on the services side. So kind of everyone's happy. And Maybe the structure of it is again like a flywheel where they started with a quality, reliable product, which is like anything that's going to generate more business. And then with sales, they invested in more stores to dealers, just like Domino's did, which results in better service, which results in more sales to deer, which results in more product research. And then, of course, more sales and store, et cetera. And these network effects just continue to accelerate more and more annually. So one great product with continued advancements in, in incremental technology. And two, the, the dense service base allows them to just keep pushing price and they haven't seen miss, met their limits there yet. So. And so in the consideration set for customers, is Deer generally a higher price product than its competition from CNH and Agco? They may not call it like a like-for-like like higher price, but if you say X-series combine, they would be higher. I'd say generally, if you kind of run a lot of the operational processes and do the analysis on that, they're probably... Net gonna be a lot cheaper on a per acre or a per bushel basis. Deerwood, they've advertised that they create an extra forty dollars of value for customers on a per acre basis. I don't know exactly how they get there, but I it doesn't surprise me in terms of the efficiencies you get, where flip side CNH, et cetera, has been trying to get there and it was quite difficult to bring that whole technology value proposition together. They ended up buying Raven for 
which is an ag tech company for two point something billion. It's probably not like a good conclusion for them to come to. It's like a fine outcome, but probably not what CNH was hoping to do, say five or 10 years ago. So they've generally been successful based upon that kind of leveraging the network effects that their customers are or switching costs that everyone's gone into, but also earning it on a day-to-day basis. It's not a rate too far or anything like that. I wouldn't say it's there yet. And so you alluded to the Raven acquisition by CNH. Is that kind of an admission that John Deere's technology is just leaps and bounds above that of its peer set? Yeah, I would say so. In Raven had previously done a couple acquisitions prior. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of things I have in there. And same thing, they're working towards autonomy. You could, just like Ben Thompson's written about, you know, there's an anti-Amazon alliance out there. Both CNH and Agco have formed these like, massive press releases where there's four or five different companies that try to create this technology value problem. And I think it's always been challenging. I think it becomes even more and more challenging as agriculture becomes autonomous, whether that's decisions being made autonomously or the equipment running autonomously the interoperable or integrated value proposition from your digital providers becomes more important. So, so yeah, I would say it's, it's an admission. There are probably better to do that than to not do anything. And it, as it's just like we talked about with the dealer network, it's almost like no way you can catch up to that. You know, if you have like double the amount of stores you have, it's probably not going to be a high return for a couple of decades. So they're better to just probably spend to try to catch up and at least be like reasonably entertained, but talk to any startup ag tech business the core focus is always like, how do we get the John Deere API as soon as possible? And it's kind of like, think all, that's almost like become like the zero to one moment. It's like once you get that, you can focus on building your product. But if you don't have that, you're really not going to be moving forward anytime soon. So on that point around the John Deere API, are they explicitly building an ecosystem of approved third parties that can work with the data in order to interact with Deere's equipment? Yeah. Doesn't work as slick as our iPhone, where connect to the app right then, you know, it'll be more like a referral service. But there's approved apps, and there's a few hundred. The portal, I guess you would call your John Deere portal, connect there. You know, as a customer, you approve that you can share the data, et cetera. You'll work with the client. You'll work as a client with the company to get all that set up. I don't believe Deer charges them anything. It's kind of like a flywheel of data again, where these people are creating new products and, in a sense, creating new ways to look at data. That all flows back into the John Deere portal. For example, I'm pretty sure every OEM or Deere can ingest data from any equipment manufacturer now, but they don't send it to anyone. So they found a pretty interesting way to keep creating value internally for Deere and their customers if they're using John Deere equipment. So it's an app store. Again, it's not one click, but the industry also isn't one click anywhere. So I think Deere now has more software engineers than they do mechanical engineers as, as a reference point. Are we looking towards a future where farmers won't be riding in the cab anymore and the machines will be running through the fields themselves? I think from a technology perspective, that's probably like already done and certainly doable. I think the issue is more maybe regulatory or legal in how that happens. So I won't be the expert to figure that out. But I certainly until that is decided, I think you're going to see a, a lot more automation. Of course, like machine to machine talking is not like a new novel concept anymore. And there's no reason your combine can't be talking to your semi-truck, et cetera, which talks to your vineyard, et cetera. So there's certain ways you can continue to automate things. And, and we focus on that a lot. Just automate these decisions to you know, increase consistency, to increase predictability, increase returns. So it'll keep going that way. I think deer, they could flip the switch. They could probably do it. I'm sure maybe even the other ones could. It wouldn't maybe be as slick. But 
always factors to figure out like road travel, water and sleeves it rains, stuff like that. In some ways, it's a lot easier than the autonomous car because there's not a bunch of other cars on the road. You're in the middle of a field, which has got its pros. They said there's not as much to run into. But on the flip side, like I think a lot of these autonomous technologies are using, you know, they're taking pictures of paint and they're able to kind of work off those other objects. Where in the field, there's nothing to really reflect off of. And all of a sudden, you may go and track and may drive into like a wet spot and get stuck. And so it's about how do you figure out those things and what's really an impact. If you have an 80-foot planter, you could have a tree in the middle of that. That's just a small tree or something like that. How do you optimize around all those things that seem kind of trivial, but still work from an ergonomic performance, everything like that. So I've got some experience in that business. It's different than people, right? Where they just like want to relax while they're driving. Where in business, it's like a cost decision. And at the moment, I would say the employee is like, like a great risk management expense. They can just stop driving if they're going to hit something. A lot of the technology has gotten the cost down as much as possible from a input unit perspective. It's just for the time being, the labor cost is still, still tied to that hour in the field, et cetera. Fascinating. As both an investor and an operator in the space, a great place to kind of leave this is what are the lessons you've learned from John Deere as a practitioner and as an investor? What about their business model have you learned that you can apply to other situations? Build off of your strengths. Deere is like a leader in technology, but they didn't try to be the Amazon or the Uber of, et cetera. Like they just wanted to be the best John Deere company they could be. They built off their advantages in hardware to get in, into, as we talked about software and these other kind of essential technology layers that they have. Another important thing I think is obviously Deere has a super long term horizon. They had like something like 10 CEOs. The first half of those were family and also only probably all internal hires, but five non family hires. But the challenge is like, if I'm a farmer and it doesn't rain and commodity prices are in the toilet, I don't care how long John Deere's vision is. I need help. My combine's broken down today. I don't care about John Deere's combine next year. So it's important to one, if you've got to have a long-term horizon, but you need to complement with people that are willing to work with the users or the customers of your product to make sure that they don't get worn out from your um, long-term horizon. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. John Deere is a fascinating company. Its position as an oligopoly in one of the largest and most global industries is a competitive advantage that they're going to continue to enjoy. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Zach. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 